So we are currently in a sermon series called Kingdom and King, where we are walking through Jesus's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so today we are going to be reading out of Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. If you do have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there with me. And if you're willing and able, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Again, that is Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go to 12. This is God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. You guys look well this morning. I want to welcome you here. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors of the church, and we're so glad that uh, you joined us this morning. If you're a guest, we want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your week. And hopefully someone's grabbed you and shared with you a little bit about who we are and what we're trying to do here. Um, and it's our, it's our prayer, it's our hope that if you don't have a home church, that you make Providence your home church. We'd love to have you here. Um, and so please get connected. Go outside into the Connect booth. Fill out a Connect card. Figure out how to get into a home group. Uh, that would be a great way for you to get involved here at Providence. But I want to jump right in. This morning, we're going to begin with the Beatitudes. Uh, like Jenna said, we are in a sermon series uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. And so last week, I kind of did an introduction to that, uh, only out of the first two verses. If you haven't been caught up with us, you can always go online, check out the podcast. You can listen to it. Uh, but I'm just going to kind of hop right in. So before I do, uh, if you'll bow your heads with me, I want to pray for us, ask the Holy Spirit to do what I could never do. Uh, which is to unfold his word in a way that's impactful for us. So if you'll bow your heads, I want to pray. Father, um, I'm humbled by your word. I'm grateful for it, um, even when it stings. We're grateful, God, that we don't have to uh, gather together and pool our best advice to each other. Uh, we don't have to get together and hope that um, one of us could, could lead us out of the dark situations that many times we find ourselves in, the dark world that we find ourselves living in, but that your word illuminates our path. The truth of your word stands timeless. And Lord Jesus, you stand forth from your word as a glorious savior and friend to us. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, open our ears, open our eyes. Let us hear from you this morning. Be encouraged, even if it may be through the channel and conduit of conviction. Let us be challenged and encouraged and find life in you, Lord Jesus. We we look to your word to do so, and we are grateful. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I don't know about you guys. We're coming out. We're still in winter time. We're coming out of Christmas time. My son uh, has been kind of sick off and on. I've been talking with a lot of our members of our church. It seems like kids just kind of get sick in a, this like cyclical, uh, in, you know, if you have multiple kids, then it's almost like you're just always sick. It's just who, which kid is sick and then which parent is sick. You guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, that's kind of been happening in our house. We've been on this cycle for about three or four months now. And then my wife and I were talking about it, and we recognized 
really, Jonas has kind of gotten sick uh, on, on repeat once a month with what our doctors have told us are allergies or a cold or a virus. You ever gone to the doctor, do you feel like you just keep getting the same answers over and over again? You're a little frustrated with that. Am I the only one? We're in church. You could tell the truth. That's happened to me uh, and happened to us. And so finally, we're like, you know what? He's had this cough for seems like a year. Maybe that's not a cold. You know, let's take him in again for like the seventh time. Maybe they'll do some, some sort of tests. And anyway, so we're bringing him in there and they do some tests on him. They put like these monitors on him, put a breathing treatment on him. He looks kind of like something off War of the Worlds. Uh, and then our doctor tells us, you know, like your son, I think he has asthma. I'm like, oh, that would have been helpful a year ago, you know. Um, and so he starts kind of walking us. There's like, you know, does, is, this, is this something that he struggles with? Yes. Well, does he kind of do this? Yes. So he starts checking off on lists like, oh, yeah, all of those things are true. And so what we recognize is maybe he has asthma. And all of a sudden, you know, the things of his, his breathing struggles and everything start to make sense, which seems like it'd be an easy fix, right? It'd be an easy uh, answer to get a little bit earlier. And yet it didn't. Um, and, and I think that sometimes what happens in our lives, particularly uh, in, in our spiritual lives, is much like what happened with Jonas. Uh, we don't want to really get to the root issue. We just kind of we just kind of treat symptom issues. Um, so, like if if we get a cough, I know as an adult I'm much more difficult, and as a man, uh, men are just difficult in general. Sorry, ladies. Um, I'm much more difficult to get to go to the doctor. Like my wife's like, you know, you probably should go to the doctor. I'm bleeding out. I'm like, it's okay. We'll just get a bandaid on that. You know, it'll be all right. Uh, and, and, and the reason for that is I just want to treat, like if I have a really bad cough, I'm like, it's no big deal, it's just a cold, you know, I'll put NyQuil on it, you know. Uh, and NyQuil helps me sleep, helps you sleep, helps us all sleep. I'll just give you all NyQuil, you know, that way when I'm coughing through the night, we're okay. Um, and I, you know, I typically don't go to the doctor, my wife gets mad until it's bronchitis. You know, once it's bronchitis and it's already in my lungs or whatever, then I'm, then I'm at the doctor's office and, and that's typically what I do. I treat the symptoms until then. Um, and, and, and I think that our tendency is to do this even, even in our, maybe like our house. It doesn't have to be our physical health. Like let's say you go out in your backyard, it hasn't rained at all, and you see a puddle, right? There's no rain, but there's puddles. You're like, oh, that's odd. Like, well, hopefully the sun will dry that up, you know, and you kind of you go on. What you should do is probably note there's a leak somewhere, right? And I'm helping you out, guys, if you don't know that, by the way. That means there may be a leak somewhere. Or maybe if you like have breakers in your house that start to trip randomly, and you're like, huh, my refrigerator is leaking. Like, oh, because it's off. Oh, because there's ice in it and it's melting. You don't just go and then flip the breaker back on and be like, weird. <laughs> there's a reason, all right? And maybe you should lean into that, right? And the reason usually is a root issue, not a symptom issue. And we, I think, are bent, whether it be towards laziness or negligence or particularly with our souls, we are bent toward treating symptom issues and not systemic issues or root issues. What's at the real heart of why we're doing what we're doing? Particularly in, in spiritual life, it's we are very apt to treat behaviors, but not the causes of behaviors. Why is that? Because behaviors, much like puddles in your yard, are seen. If the puddle in your yard dries up and nobody sees it, the leak can still be there, but it's not as cumbersome. You don't have to put boots on your kid when he goes out to the playground, right? So let's just let it ride. The problem is it could be a leak that's not just on your yard, but inside your house, which then could then lead to mold, which could then lead to awful things, right? But nonetheless, when it's not seen, it's not superficial, we don't have the tendency to want to rush to that and try to fix it. In our souls, it's similar. If we have an anger problem, we want to fix the anger problem if we're freaking out in HEB whenever someone like steps in front of us in the shopping line. If we freak out and the cops get called, then we probably need to go to counseling. 
But if internally we have this anger problem and we're just kind of brooding and everything's riding beneath the surface, we're not so tempted to really address the anger at its root because it's not seen. It's not visible. Jesus does the exact opposite in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't even really get to symptoms. And when he does start getting to behaviors, it's on the foundation of what we're about to talk about this morning, which is these root issues of the heart. Jesus is ruthlessly about the heart in the Sermon on the Mount, and he starts there. Uh, I have been preaching for over 10 years, and I've preached a lot of sermons. I will tell you, Jesus' sermon follows none of the ways in which I was taught to preach. It's not the way they teach you to preach in seminary. It's not the outlines that you can get online of templates of how to preach. It's no pastor's ever told me to preach like Jesus preached. And here's why. Because Jesus starts right out of the gates with no story like I just did. He doesn't start with like a, hey, we're going to start the plane and we're going to be on the landing strip for a while before we take off. No, he's 30,000 feet in the air right off the bat. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What? He just goes right at you. His ending of his sermon is not... uh, It's not really like a a gentle landing. Like Jesus doesn't gently land you back down and say, okay, now here we are. Let's pray. Let's come and take communion. Jesus ends with, there's two houses. One of them falls down when the storms come. One of them doesn't. And great was the fall of that house that didn't have a foundation. And then he gets up and walks away. That's it. He doesn't have very many anecdotes. Like later on, we get the Jesus who tells parables, right? Tells stories. And Jesus was a storyteller. The Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't do that so much. Like he gives short little parables of maybe, you know, tiny little examples and analogies. But for the most part, he's just three chapters straight telling you as it is. And you almost kind of feel like you can't breathe as he continues to go after the heart. But it's really gracious in the way that he does it. Because Jesus is unwilling to allow us to continue to treat symptoms. But much like it was grace for our doctor to finally figure out that my son has asthma and to tell us that so that we could treat the real root issue rather than continue to give him Zyrtec. Um... Jesus does the same for our souls. Rather than applying and continuing to apply the law and religion to the heart, which in the end never changes the heart, Jesus instead says, why don't you let me, the great physician, come in and fix what is broken? So that's where we're going to jump off. And we're going to jump off with the Lord allowing, or the Lord pressing in. And, And my hope is that we would allow him to say the tough thing so that we can actually address the root and not just the symptoms. So I don't have tons of time. I have roughly 20 minutes to go through so much content. The Beatitudes, when we planned out this series, I thought, could we do a whole series just on the Beatitudes? The answer is yes. You could do a whole series just on these eight verses and just kind of walk through. Uh, we could probably do two to three weeks on just blessed are the poor in spirit, but we, we don't have time, so we decided to have them here. And so I hope you'll bear with me. I have a short amount of time, but to walk through these Beatitudes, which the Beatitudes kind of stand as uh, Jesus's conversation, not about what we should do, but who we ought to be. Now, this is a big, stark contrast to what this crowd would have been used to, where Moses stood up and said, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Jesus doesn't say, you should do this before saying, this is who you are. Blessed are those who are like this. Blessed are those who are these kind of people. Blessed are those who have this identity. Jesus aims his Sermon on the Mount at the beings of Christianity, not the doings of Christianity. He's going to get there when he says that we ought to be generous. He's going to get there when he's going to say we ought to pray like this. He's going to get there when he says that we ought to love our enemies. But before he gets there, he says this is the kind of people, Christians, or people, my disciples, citizens of the kingdom, this is the kind of people they are. Being overdoing. 
being overdoing is where Jesus starts. And I think that that's key. So how does he start? Let's, let's just jump off in the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so the Beatitudes start and finish. Number one and number eight both have the same promise. So you're gonna get this blessed are the fill in the blank and then you're gonna get a promise attached to the back end of that. And number one and number eight both have the same promise and it's this, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what's Jesus getting at? Citizens of the kingdom, the inheritors of the kingdom look like this. And then the other six are gonna have different promises that come along with them. You gotta love that from Christ because he's not only telling you who we are because of his gracious work that he's going to go accomplish on the cross, but that when we put faith in Christ and we become these people, there are promises attached to this. That citizenry in the kingdom looks like this and results in this. Are you guys with me on this? It looks like this and then this, it produces this. The first is we inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, this has kind of been hijacked over the, uh, the course of many years from social justice warriors that just, they completely eliminate the poor in spirit and they just say, blessed are the poor. That's not what Jesus is saying. Uh, Jesus did much ministry to the poor. He cared about the poor. He called us to care about the poor. That's not what this text is about. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus attacking at the very first? If you don't get this first beatitude, you won't get any other beatitude. It's all built on this foundation and this foundation alone. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, meaning that pride is the first that must fall. The first thing that must fall for the citizen of the kingdom is that you are not your own God. You are not holy and righteous apart from God. You are not merely a little bit of tweaking away from being holy and perfect, but that there needs to be a total reconstruction of your soul. Another translation of poor in spirit for some of the commentators is spiritual bankruptcy. Jesus' very first introductory lines is, blessed are those who realize they are spiritually bankrupt and have nothing to offer God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, conviction must precede conversion, and there is no other way. Happy are those who are confronted with the bankruptcy of their own soul, and they acknowledge it. He says, when we look deep within, unlike what the world tells us, we look deep within and we find that which is special, unique, and if we were just to you know, do these right seven steps and meditate and do yoga and do breathing exercises in the morning and eat you know, leafy spinach and work out more and be nicer to our kids and be nicer to our wives and have a better job and save and have gazelle-like intensity with our debt and all that kind of stuff, then we would be okay. Jesus says, no, when we look inwardly, it doesn't get better. Actually, when we look inwardly and the Spirit opens the eyes of our hearts, what we find is that there's a barrenness inside of our soul. There's not a desire to know God. There's a desire to be God, and it's very perverted and backwards. And Jesus says, blessed are those who see that, and rather than running, they embrace it. Pride inhibits us from seeing the kingdom of God because we are too preoccupied with our own kingdom. So Jesus says you won't even really want the kingdom of God if you're prideful because you're too busy building your own. But when you see the bankruptcy of your own sandcastle kingdom that you're trying to build and you abandon it, you're blessed. Okay, what does he say? He goes on. Now remember, these kind of build on each other. So no pride, right? The pride has to die to be a citizen of the kingdom. Number two, blessed are they that mourn for they will be comforted. Now, I want you to think on this one. Is there anything that our world is more keen 
to relegate to the sidelines or completely avoid than mourning, right? Like, I, I don't know about you, but I want to be transparent with you. I hate the feeling of mourning. Maybe it's from my own childhood. Maybe it's from some of the things that I experienced. I lost my dad whenever I was 12. Lost a number of family members very, very young. I do not like funerals. I know I'm a pastor. You're like, ooh, not calling this guy, you know, to do the funeral. <laughs> Listen, I, I do it by the, the spirit of God. It's the only way. Because I promise you, in my flesh, my first inclination is to say, where can I isolate and hide until this is over? I do not like it. And yet Jesus is saying, blessed are those who find themselves in the house of mourning. Now, I want to promise you something, and I think you could take this to the bank. That is not going to be a Time Magazine headline anytime soon. I promise you, you will not find that on a BuzzFeed article, Seven Things to Happiness. Mourning. You will not. Jesus says here what no one else has ever said, that mourning leads to joy. And he says it's essential for the Christian, but why would he say that? Well, but remember, these build on each other. If you're truly spiritually bankrupt, the only appropriate response is that you would mourn it. And if you look headlong into spiritual bankruptcy and you don't mourn it, I would dare say that you have not really understood sin. You have not really understood God. You not, have not really understood what it means to be broken. But when we see our own brokenness and we see our holy God, we see what was offered to us in the garden and that we were the cause of that schism. I know, you know, we're thousands of years removed from this. So some of us say, I don't like the Adam and Eve story. Why do I have to pay for their mistakes? Listen, friends, you have done that and worse in your life constantly. If we ever put ourselves in Adam and Eve situation and say, I would have done better, I promise you, you wouldn't have. And all I have to do, I don't have to look at a track record of reactions I don't even have to go back into your childhood when you like stole a pencil from, you know, Billy. I could just take last week and take the desires of our hearts. If they were to be put up on the PowerPoint, the motivational structure of Court's heart on the PowerPoint behind me, I'd be so ashamed without even knowing if I've done anything real ridiculous. Like, it's there and it's scary. And Jesus says when we're confronted with our bankruptcy of spirit, then the only natural flow should be mourning. Well, what do we mourn? We mourn our own personal sin, and then what do we do? We take the next step, the consequences of our sin, how it's affected those around us. Friends, the truth of the Bible is that our sin is never in a vacuum. You can't just sin against God and not affect other people. If you're married, it happens, it happens immediately because we're one. That's what marriage is, this union and therefore, our sinfulness affects our spouse, then it affects our children, and then it affects our neighbors, and it affects those around us. And the Christian looks at this and mourns and says, oh, God. And then he looks around, and he sees other people's sin and sees the consequences of their sin. And then he sees our broken world. If you, don't have, if you want to get a glimpse of our broken world, just turn on any mainstream news television outlet. And you don't even have to choose which one or which party you're affiliated with. Really, any of them are just fine. And you'll find brokenness. And the Christian looks at this, and rather than trying to jump on some party train, they go to their prayer closet, and they mourn. They say, the brokenness is so deep. And that's how, like Paul, we can say in Romans chapter 7, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You want to hear the good news, Christians? That's not the end of the verse. <laughs> Thank God Romans didn't end at chapter 7. His answer is, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 8, verse 1. For now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank God for that. But first, it started with Paul saying, O wretched man that I am. Now, Jesus is so gracious here because he says, Blessed are those that, are, that mourn, and then he gives us a promise. For they will be, give me the word, comforted. 
okay, now this is key. Jesus, by saying that, is not only affirming that mourning is necessary, but he's telling us something else implicitly, that when we don't mourn, there is no true comfort. It's false sense of comfort. So there's, there's a way in which we can live our Christian life to never truly mourn over our sin. This is also called repentance. To never truly repent, and therefore we can never experience the comfort of God because we have not really confronted that which is within us. We have smeared over it with cheap grace. We have said it's not really a big deal. Jesus says, no, it's important for us to say it's a huge deal so that then we can be comforted by the grace of God and the gospel. And then he goes on. Number three, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now remember, we got a ladder going here. So we got no pride. Number two, blessed are those who mourn. We got no pretending. Because if we refuse to mourn, basically what we're saying is, I know I'm bankrupt in my soul, but I'm going to pretend like it's all right. I'm going to pretend like it's no big deal. Jesus said, no, it's no pride for the citizen of the kingdom. It's no pretending for the citizen of my kingdom. And then he said, blessed are those who are meek. And he says, and there's no performing for the citizens of my kingdom. Now, once again, I want to say, and I'm pretty confident in this, meekness is not something that Hollywood is searching the world for right now. Like if they're looking for good actors, they don't say, find the meek ones. That doesn't happen. Washington, D.C. does not search around for politicians and say, first characteristic is meek. Find the meek ones. If you want, if you want proof of that, just think of who has been elected into office. Meekness is not the characteristic we're chasing, right? And yet Jesus calls himself this. He says, you are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Why can Jesus offer rest? Here's his, his reasoning is, because I am meek and lowly of heart. Jesus is meek. Now, I want to say here, meekness does not mean weakness. It, can't, it should not be mistaken for that. Uh, meekness is, once again, a ladder of we are, we are poor in spirit, and therefore our pride is diminished. We are, uh, we are mourning over our sin, and therefore we don't have to pretend that nothing's wrong. And then that leads to a meekness in our disposition. Martin Lloyd-Jones used the example in his commentary. He said, a meek person is the first time that Jesus starts hinting at maybe some of our disposition towards others. And he says it like this. It's easy for you to say, I am a broken person and I am sinful and I am mourning. But let someone else say that and see how you react. He said, a meek man is able to hear about his brokenness secondhand. And because he has died and been crucified with Christ, he doesn't react. But he says, yes, that's true. See, meekness puts to the test our confession of brokenness and Jesus' promises, and they will inherit the earth. Why would Jesus say that? Well, one way to think of it is meek people are already content with all that they have. And therefore, if they have been faithful with little, why would God not trust them with much? Meek inheriting the earth is the only wise move, if you think about it, because the meek person would never use the inheritance of the earth for his own power because he's recognized how dark his own power can be. So Jesus is actually just making the wise decision here say that they would inherit the earth. Okay, now this is a big one. This number four is really the hinge point of the Beatitudes. So if you think of it like a door, uh, you have building out the frame, which is, Talking about the self, right? You get the no pride, you get the no pretending, you get the no performing, and then you get the hinges that are on the door, right? 
That if you're swinging wide the door open to the kingdom, the hinges on that door are, cha- are the beatitude number four, which says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. We all have hungers. We all have thirsts. And I'm not talking about physical ones. All right? Jesus doesn't dodge this. In fact, he just, he just says this outright without having to really unpack the anatomy of the soul, of the human soul, because Jesus knows people. He says, we hunger after things, we thirst after things, we long for things. Uh, our founders of our country knew this by saying that we, they wanted to preserve for us the pursuit of happiness. They were saying that at the end of the day, everybody's pursuing happiness because they hunger after that. They desire happiness. They long for joy. I agree with them in saying that is the predisposition of the human heart. And Jesus says that we should actually hunger and thirst not after joy, but after righteousness, after holiness. That when we hunger and thirst after righteousness and holiness, we will get joy as the product but that if we're not careful, our pursuit of joy will actually lead, our, lead us down a path that doesn't result in joy. Our desires, really the world's desires, they're put on display all the time. So if you wanna know what, for the most part, we desire, I mean, you can just watch commercials. Commercials speak to your desires. So like, Billy Mays was successful because you wanted what he had to sell and because he was a great salesman. And if you didn't want it, you wanted the magic bullet after, after Billy Mays was done, right? Or ShamWow or whoever, those guys are gold. They get on there on the paid programming and you can just watch it for hours. They're saying the same things over and over again, but I don't know why. It's like better than watching a sitcom. Just watch commercials. Um, this goes all the way from products, whether it be cars that you want to buy, uh, to food, all the way to if it's selling a, a good or a service, or sometimes it's just selling a feeling. The desires of our hearts can be seen with commercials or online advertisements. In fact, online advertisements are kind of scary because they're like algorithms that are actually built out to figure out what you want that you don't even know you want based on your searching history. That's scary, by the way. We can move on. That's weird. But there are robots who know you better than you know you, and that should scare you. Okay, and you ever notice that, though? You're on Facebook, pops up. You know, have you considered this? You're like, I have considered that. (laughs) You're like looking at Alexa. You're like, are you telling them what we're talking about? You know, like... Because they are, are marketing toward your desires. Our bank statement will tell us our desires because we just look at where we spend money, right? Jesus said this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says here we shouldn't aim in happiness, but hunger and thirst after being right with God. Righteousness is about being right with God. And the truth is, for the most part, the world doesn't care about being right with God. And Jesus says that we should care of the utmost, There's two movements for this idea of righteousness. One is the theological term justification, which means that we we have right standing before God judicially or legally. So we stand before a righteous judge, and we are found guilty because of our crimes, because of our sin. And because of what Jesus has done, standing in our place for our sins, we stand right before God, and the judge can say not guilty to us because he has said guilty to Jesus because Jesus' not guilty verdict was rendered to us, and our guilty verdict was rendered to Christ. Therefore, we have a right standing. We have a righteousness. This is what Martin Luther was so jazzed up about in the Reformation. He said, when I read the righteousness of God that depends on faith, And I realized that this righteousness of God was actually a foreign righteousness. It was one that was given to me by faith, not one that I had to work for. He's like, it's like the gates of heaven open for me. 
all of a sudden I realized Christ had offered to me what I could never earn on my own and that it was given to me freely apart from my works. So hungering for that embracing of the gospel, justification, and then sanctification. Now sanctification is a little different because you can stand justified and still be at the very starting line of your sanctification. That's where all of us were when we first came to faith in Christ. It's why maybe some of your friends would say, are you sure you're a Christian? Because some of your behaviors just didn't add up with that. Maybe out of ignorance or maybe just out of like rooted issues of your own heart. But like for me, when I first became a Christian, there were things about me that just were totally not Christian. And I remember I preached my first sermon like a week after I came to know Christ. Let me tell you something. My lifestyle didn't necessarily add up with that. But nobody was going to teach in like the Christian student union. So I decided I was going to do it. I would love to have that podcast back, by the way. Sanctification is this wrestling with the power of sin. So we could have right standing before God legally and judicially, and yet sin still threatens our relationship and closeness with God because the power of sin still looks to reign over you. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 7 when he talked about this battle within us. And Jesus says that we should hunger and thirst after holiness or wholeness, purity, wholehearted pursuit of God alone, to know him, love him, worship him, serve him. And that there's where we'll find true joy. Now that's the linchpin, right? That's the hinge of the door because these next three are gonna kind of rattle off quickly. So you start with the poor in spirit, no pride. Lead you to mourning, no pretending. It leads us to meekness, no performing. And now we have this Because we've died to self in the first three, now the citizens of the kingdom can, we are freed to have a new desire that's not based on our own selfish motives, a new desire to just know God and to worship and serve him, this hunger for righteousness. And then the result is the following three. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. Okay, I think this is important. Jesus is not saying here that we are meant to look in the face of sin and law-breaking and simply say, oh, no big deal. Some of us that have a little bit of a less confrontational personality, this is what you're like. You're like, I'm really good at this one, but maybe you're not, so hold on a second. If you have a less confrontational personality, you might say, I'm okay with people you know, being mean to me. I don't really mind, but we really don't mind because we want to confront, not because it really doesn't hurt us. Other people end up being affected by that, by the way. <laughs> like, Especially when you get married and you're non-confrontational, you tend to be okay with being confrontational with your spouse. So if you're okay with other people running over you at work, then you might go home and be really mean to your spouse because you'll confront them for something they didn't even do. Anybody else? Okay, we'll move on. (laughs) Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy means that we have first received the mercy of God. If we've walked through the steps here, seen our spiritual bankruptcy, mourned over it, walked in meekness, received the mercy of God in Christ, the only true response is that we would be merciful, which is why Jesus promises that we would obtain mercy if we're merciful. Is that Jesus making it a works-based righteousness? Have you ever asked that question? Is Jesus saying we have to be merciful in order to earn salvation? No. Jesus is saying, those who truly have experienced the power of Christ's mercy have no choice to be made. They will be merciful. It naturally flows out of the mercy that has been extended to you. That we're merciful people. Then he says, blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those, Jesus said, who don't get caught in the trappings of religion 
but they focus on the inward secret life that matters so much to God. Jesus is going to have these moments in the Sermon on the Mount where he says things like, when you pray, don't pray like the Pharisees who stand on the corners and they pray loudly for everyone to hear. But go into your prayer closet and pray to your Father secretly. He hears you in the secret and he will honor you openly. Jesus will say things like, when you fast, don't let your face look gloomy and walk in so that someone will say, man, you look bad. What's wrong? You say, I've been fasting for three days <laughs> for the revival of this city. Jesus says, no, wash your face. Put oil on your face. You know? He says, don't, don't look you know, terrible like you've been run over. Keep your fast secret so that you can be rewarded and your father sees in secret. What is Jesus after here? He's not after whether or not people know or don't know as much as he's after your heart, which is either in pursuit of your own glory or it's in pursuit of God's glory. And when we do things in secret, when we do things in private, it reflects this purity of heart that we have, that we just care if God sees, not so much if our neighbor sees. One pastor said it like this, Jesus promises that the pure in heart will see God because they're the only ones who really want to. When I read that, I was a little bit shocked. I'm like, that's not, I'm, I want to too, you know? <laughs> but you see, pure-hearted people have a single-minded pursuit of their relationship with God that is not dictated by the way in which they are perceived, the way in which they are approved of or disapproved of. And what you're going to catch from Jesus is this life in the kingdom has to be to the exclusion of the glory of man that we so deeply hunger. It has to be for the glory of God or else it just doesn't work. You see, pure-hearted people don't make it a habit to be so self-absorbed that they're always offended by others. Guys, as Christians, particularly Western Christians, if you're always offended, hurt, angry, frustrated, complaining about something, I want to help you. You might want to get back to having a single-minded pursuit of God and not being so worried all the time about it. Don't, and this, listen to me, this is uniquely a church thing. I don't know why it is, but it is. Many times in the church, we get distracted by being so offended, hurt by each other, that we lose sight of the very thing that God's called us to do. I'm mad because so-and-so didn't serve for me. So-and-so said this, so-and-so did that. And we're so distracted from the main thing that it's actually sickening. And Jesus is calling us to something else. He's calling us to pure-heartedness that says, if I've been crucified with Christ, what could you say, do, about me, to me that would really hurt? Dead people don't get offended. You ever gone up to a casket and insulted the guy in there? He doesn't raise up and say, how dare you? You ever Facebooked about dead people? Like, doesn't matter how many evil things you see on Twitter about them. They don't come back and react. And Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. You talk about Paul, that's cool but it doesn't hurt Paul. Lastly, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the sons of God. This is the last of this stanza. And I love this because Jesus has been aiming at selflessness, and I think that there is no way for anyone to be a peacemaker that's self-absorbed, and Jesus knows this. True peacemakers have died to self, and then they long to extend the peace of God to those around them. And they can only do this with the gospel. A couple things about peacemakers. Peacemakers hold their tongue. They try not to override conflict with their conversation or their opinion. They listen well, and then they offer the gospel. Not just their own insight, they offer the gospel. 
Peacemakers aren't interested in gossip. Sometimes people get uh, deemed as peacemakers that really are just messy, right? I know there's none of us in this room, but some people, they can be deemed as peacemakers, but really they're just gossips. They like to be where the, the action is, and so they enter into the action, and they're like, I'm just trying to help out. I, I really appreciate your good, you know, your, your good-heartedness that you want to help out. Sometimes you need to withdraw to be a peacemaker, not always jump in on the action. And then Jesus says this, the peacemakers will be called the sons of God. We are children of God because we are reproducers of God's peace to the world that so desperately needs peace. And you might be thinking, world peace, that's so sweet. Listen, I'm not talking about the world peace you're talking about. I'm talking about the peace with God that needs to be made first before any world peace will ever be possible. We offer that in the gospel, not because we have something unique, but because God does. Now, Jesus' last words here as he kind of ends the stanza is a little bit, I wouldn't call it discouraging, I would just call it honest. Jesus says this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are not two beatitudes, by the way. These are, these are kind of one and the same. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, for your reward is great in heaven. Sadly, the response to the gospel is not always going to be encouragement, but it's going to be persecution. And we're not persecuted because we parade around our faith. We're not persecuted because we make it a habit to be difficult or presumptuous. We're persecuted simply because our lives are so different from the world that they become a little bit antagonistic from the very nature of them. Pastorally, I wanted to say this before I move into close, and this is a tough thing for me to say, but it's true. I've heard many times from people who have become new Christians and talked to me, that they experience more persecution for their faith and pursuit of righteousness in the church than anywhere else. And that's tough. That when they first come to faith, they have a real zeal and a passion for God, and they might step into a home group and talk about that passion for God, and quickly people make fun of them. Quickly people say, oh, you just wait. You won't be so passionate in a few years. They step into a situation where maybe people are gossiping and they decide not to engage with that or maybe even they are brave enough to step up and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't be talking about this and they are met with vehement fomenting anger. Oh, you're so holier than thou. You come in here, you act like you don't gossip. Right? I think Jesus knows this when he says this. You notice Jesus has a lot of conversations with the Pharisees, which would have been the religious elite of the day. And oftentimes his conversations are this a little bit confrontational, I would say. That's, that's a euphemism. <laughs> They're a little bit confrontational. Why? Because the Pharisees had this kind of attitude toward the disciples. Like, they didn't come in and say, man, I'm so glad your disciples are loving and kind and ministering to the destitute. Y'all are healing, y'all are praying, y'all are caring for. The Pharisees came in and said, why do your disciples eat without washed hands? The filth. You ever notice that? Jesus comes in and heals someone. They don't go, thanks be to God, this man was healed. They come and say, how dare you heal on the Sabbath? Jesus is like, I made the Sabbath. The Pharisees show up oftentimes missing the heart because in their religious cold-heartedness, they end up being persecutors, the very disciples that Jesus is coming to make. Now, how do we close out with the Sermon on the Mount? Beatitudes. 
I think there's two things. There's two promises here from Jesus. The word blessed are those. Blessed means joyful or happy. Happy are those. So Jesus' promise here is that if we live this way, that there's happiness, joy that we'll have. Can we all agree we want that? Okay. The promise next week is going to be that there's also an impact that comes from this kind of life, as Jesus talks about us being salt and light. So there's two promises here. We get joy and we begin to impact the world around us. We begin to be light in a dark world, and I think that's huge. But I want to take another turn. If this morning you're saying, you know, Court, I know you're telling me that this is a promise of joy, but I don't feel all that joyful. Like when I hear that stuff, I feel a little convicted. Okay, I want to say to you, don't run from this sermon yet. That's a good thing. You're in a great place. If you're seated and you say, I really exhibit those, I would say that's a bad seat to sit in. Okay, friends? Jesus didn't preach that so you could go, oh my gosh, I am humble. <laughs> I knew it. I... I knew this was my calling. No, Jesus preached this sermon that we might be in that exact seat of, I feel the weight of what I am not. Why? Because when we feel that weight, we can finally stop the pride, stop the pretending, stop the performing, and run headlong to Jesus who welcomes us with open arms. He's standing there so that when we finally lift our head from being bowed, thinking, oh my gosh, that's me, when we open our eyes and look up, he says, come to me. You see, here's the beauty of the Beatitudes. It's that when you get to the end of them, you get to go right back to the start again and say, oh, my spiritual bankruptcy, thanks be to God that we have Christ who makes me wealthy all over again. That when I mourn over my sin, he comforts me. That when I live in meekness, I know that I'm ultimately just reflecting how he lived his life. Jesus stands and says, come to me. And this morning, the question we ought to ask is not whether we are serious about these things and trying to live this way. The question is, are you serious about keeping your eyes on Jesus, who is so much more serious about making you this person than you could ever be? Are you guys walking with me on this? Please get this part. Are we serious about focusing our eyes on Christ, who is very serious about making us this person? And he's better at it than you. So like my son Jonas, I bring him to the doctor. Thanks be to God that doctors are skilled to do what I can't do. They get down to the root of the issue and they can treat it. My job is simply to come to the doctor and say, I need help. I need help. Jesus says, I'm the great physician and I've come to help the sick because those that are well have no need of a physician. He said that to the Pharisees and I think some of the Pharisees said, huh, okay, we got it. Well, we're well, help those sick people. He said it to the Pharisees to say, you're sick and you don't even know it, and I'm right here offering you medicine. And so this morning, I hope that you would take what's offered to you. I hope that you would receive what's offered to you. As we read the Beatitudes, don't get me wrong, I think we should pursue them with our whole heart, but we shouldn't pursue the obedience of the Beatitudes, but pursue the king of the Beatitudes. Don't pursue kingdom attributes before you pursue the king himself, because it's only the king himself that can make us these kind of people. Amen? You'll stand to your feet. I'll pray for us. Father, my confession to you is that I know in my heart of hearts my tendency toward religion. I ask your forgiveness and help that I would not run headlong into trying to be and do 
before resting in the finished work that you offer, running to you and asking for healing, being near to you, Lord Jesus, is the true longing of my heart. And so I ask help. And I follow that for my friends, for those under the sound of my voice. Would you help us run to you? Would you help us be mourners that are comforted? Help us hunger and thirst after righteousness, wholeness, and find that righteousness in you, Jesus. Give us what we have not, my God. Turn our eyes to you, Lord Jesus. We trust you. We long for you. Do this in us that we might make the gospel an ignorable. In Jesus' name, amen.